The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello and welcome. This is Mark Green standing in for Mary Woods. Um, Today I am lucky to have Andrew Tatarski to talk about harm reduction and integrative harm reduction psychotherapy. Um, Andrew... Yeah. Um, is hello. Hello. Um, Andrew's very um, been very active and involved in the politics of um, drug use and the treatment of substance abuse. Really understanding um, the process of substance use on a very deep level with participants, um, with patients who tend to come for treatment. He's a psychologist in independent practice, working with individual, group, and couples treatment. Um, he holds a PhD in clinical psychology and has specialised in substance abuse for over 25 years as a counselor, psychologist, trainer, program director, and author. In that role, Andrew published an important book in 2007, um, Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, a New Treatment for Drug and Alcohol Problems. And in um, is, and has also authored um, some other works, including Developing Your Healthiest Relationship to Marijuana, a Harm Reduction Approach in 2010, and Addiction, Meaning and Understanding in 2008. So, Andrew, welcome. Thank you. I'm very, very uh, honored and, and excited to be here on this show. Thanks. So, what is this stuff called harm reduction? Well, harm reduction is really a relatively new philosophy for um, helping people deal with substance use problems that um, we believe has a tremendous value um, to increase the effectiveness of substance use treatment across the board. Um, you know, it starts with uh, accepting people where they are. Uh, instead of requiring abstinence, the focus is on uh, helping people reduce the harm associated with their substance use. Um, and therefore, it kind of embraces small incremental steps or positive changes as success. So it really sees uh, the process of change as evolving uh, kind of more incrementally rather than um, setting up requirements for treatment that people are not able to um, you know, achieve, uh, and and I believe that this really sets a context which is much more conducive for people getting started in working uh, toward positive change from wherever they are. Um, you know, beginning a process of positive change uh, and establishing kind of therapeutic relationships uh, wherever they are in the process of you know their substance use, their addiction, their recovery. Well, how is this different from what's been done in treatment for many years? 
Well, I've been thinking about this as, uh, you know, that we are in the midst of a kind of paradigm shift, like a scientific revolution in understanding problem substance use. Uh, from an earlier uh, kind of crude disease concept, which is sort of split off from the rest of the person in their environment, and based on that old view, abstinence was the only acceptable goal of treatment. It was necessary to buy into that at the beginning of the recovery process. And if you didn't buy into that or you didn't achieve it quickly, uh, you were kind of deemed not ready. Uh, and I think that that effectively has kept lots of people from getting started. What harm reduction does is it sort of turns that upside down and it says, um, you know, wherever people are ready to begin a process of positive change is where treatment should meet them. So we talk about meeting the client where the client is. Uh, and then based on that um, uh, sort of compassionate uh, acceptance of where the client is, we can then collaborate with clients in uh, sort of figuring out what the nature of the problem is. And therefore, the treatment kind of emerges out of that therapeutic relationship, that alliance it, it starts from where the client is rather than being forced on the patient, sort of a priori. So it's, um, I was saying to you before the show, it's tricky for me to play devil's advocate, but helpful, I think, to, for me to try. Um, so I'll do my best. Um, a lot of people would say that by reducing the harm, you might be delaying um, or reducing the impact of negative consequences essential for someone to make some changes in their life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this is related to the idea that people need to hit a bottom or that negative consequences will sort of overwhelm their denial. Um, and, um, in fact, I think the data in people's experience shows that that is not uh, very helpful and very effective. Um, it seems to me most people that are struggling with substance use problems are really struggling and they are quite aware that they're suffering as a result of their substance use. It seems to me the question is why do people continue to use a substance when there is clear and present evidence that it's hurting them, uh, you know, medically, emotionally, uh, in terms of their pocketbooks and so on. And we need a different model for understanding uh, and I think this is part of this kind of paradigm shift that I was talking about, that um, if we recognize that people are using substances in such a tenacious way because um, they are serving some important function, they are being used maybe in the, in the service of self-medication or attempting to adapt to very difficult life circumstances or emotional circumstances, then we can consider that the difficulty that people are having changing has to do with their ambivalence, that despite the negative consequences, people um, are deeply invested in using for a whole variety of reasons that need to be uh, understood, need to be clarified, and um, may need uh, to have alternative solutions offered uh, in the process of um, moving forward in their recoveries or in, uh, being more willing to give up the substance. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the issue of 
rock bottom is an interesting one. I don't know how much it's used these days, um, but certainly a decade or more ago, um, there was a lot of discussion about people really needing to reach a rock bottom before they could alter their behavior. And it feels to me that what you might be saying is that with the compassionate meeting of the um, compassionate changing of the therapist's stance in order to meet the um, patient and help collaboratively think through what, why they might be continuing to bang their head against the wall, mm-hmm. um, the um, client might be able to say, you know what, I'm rock bottom enough. I feel hopeless. I mm. feel helpless. I can make a, I, I, maybe I can make a change now. And I've, um, so it might enable people to reach a rock bottom a bit less deep. Well, I think in the old language, what you're talking about is uh, what people describe as uh, raising the bottom. <laughs> you know, the problem with hitting rock bottom is that often people don't come back from rock bottom. You know, often people who are denied treatment because they are, you know, not clear about whether they want to stop or not, um, leave feeling worse which may contribute to an escalation in their substance use, which may lead to uh, terrible, tragic consequences. Uh, That's the rock bottom that people don't return from. Uh, So in that language, if we can engage people before they've hit rock bottom, it seems to me we may be able to um, help people begin to reverse the negative cycle of addiction and begin a positive cycle of positive change. Um, from wherever they are. And one of the things that I believe really um, strongly in is that the nature of the relationship uh, that we can have with people by, um, you know, engaging them with respect, with compassion, with acceptance uh, and understanding as a starting point for a therapeutic process um, is tremendously helpful uh, in terms of its power to uh, to stimulate hope, to motivate people to take a look at themselves, mm-hmm. uh, even to promote uh, the kind of awareness uh, and kind of self-knowledge, which I think is going to lead to uh, a positive vision for recovery and change. Uh, so it's another way of thinking about um, you know, how we help motivate people to, to make positive change. You know, in the old model, it was, you know, we had to break through denial. And while I think there may be denial operating with some people with serious substance use, um, you know, I think, as I was suggesting a few minutes ago, it may be more the case with many people that it's the sense of not seeing alternatives, not having alternative ways of managing difficulties, of caring for oneself. And it's in this relational context of support, of empathy, of respect, um, that I think people can start to examine and consider alternative, better solutions, which is what the recovery process is about. So you've used... um the recovery word, the recovery process. Do you think someone can be in recovery if they're still using? Well, it seems to me if we think about 
recovery as a process of moving toward um, greater health, um, greater self-actualization, um, uh, you know, positive change around substance use and other issues. Um, I think people can begin the process of recovery while they're actively using. I think, again, going back to this notion of competing paradigms or competing models, in this old crude disease concept model, um, the only way to arrest the disease, the quote disease, is through complete and total abstinence. And that's, according to that point of view, the, the time at, at which recovery may begin. Um, so I think this new model, maybe recovery can be a process that starts way before abstinence is ever attained. Absolutely. Andrew, we're going to stop for a break. Be back in a moment. Okay. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! 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 <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Janine Marks, a 12-year-old, was fairly normal. She spent a lot of time online. One day, she met a new friend. The new friend had the same problems at home. They liked the same bands. They worried about the same subjects in school. They promised to keep each other's secrets. They wished they went to the same junior high. The new friend had good news. He said he was going to be in Janine's area one Saturday. He thought it would be amazing if they could just hang out, go to the mall. Janine agreed. The new friend didn't want parents messing this up. Janine showed up alone. So did her new friend, who wasn't in junior high wasn't nice, and wasn't a 14-year-old boy. Every day, children are sexually solicited online. Help delete online predators. Call 1-800-THE-LOST or visit CyberTipLine.com to learn how to protect your kids' online life. 
A message from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Ad Council. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello, um, this is Mark Green standing in for Mary Woods talking with Andrew Tatarski. Um, so, Andrew, mm-hmm. coming back to the harm reduction issue, why is this such a controversial issue? And, and is it seen this way, um, is it so controversial internationally or is it hang-up that we Americans have? Uh, well, this is such an interesting and complex question. Um, harm reduction is controversial in this country because of what I have alluded to uh, as this kind of paradigm shift or scientific revolution in addiction thinking and treatment. Um, you know, the, the old paradigm, what I'm calling this crude disease concept, that is the concept or understanding of addiction as being, you know, separated from the rest of the person and their environment, having kind of a life of its own, um, emerged in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and it was based on the experience of AA members who were interviewed by Emil Jelinek, who authored the disease concept. And this was at a time when I think uh, addicted people were, by and large, shunned by the medical establishment in the United States. Um, you know, they were kind of given up on, by and large. And so what was so revolutionary and so uh, important about the, the development of AA and the 12-step movement was that people came together uh, to help one another when the medical establishment had given up on them. Um, and it was out of that uh, movement, really, that this um, kind of old view of addiction emerged. And also the notion that, you know, this is the only thing that works. Well, historically at that time, it was the only thing that worked because there was no other place for um, addicted people to go. So then I think what emerged was a whole addiction, alcoholism, treatment industry that was um, riding or you know, selling AA, essentially. And, you know, uh, in some sense, we then developed uh, a multi-billion dollar addiction treatment industry based on the concepts of AA that now had an investment in selling that program and making it the only game in town. Uh, we, we had, you know, hundreds of thousands of addiction counselors trained in that, many of whom you know, got sober according to that model. And so there's this old established order that is invested on a number of levels. Um, yeah, then, I think it's important to say it's a number of levels because there's the deep emotional um, commitment that people have to um, 12-step recovery because they may have um, really been saved um, their lives may have been saved by that, and and that people in uh, and that the the addictions 
treatment world ha- was dominated, really came to the fore through peer um, work and efforts. And I think the medical establishment kind of came along on, on its coattails a bit more, but um, that treatment was established and really pushed um, by 12-step movement. Or is that an overstatement? That's correct. Now, historically, I believe in the 60s and 70s and then moving into the current period, we had a group of scientists, researchers, uh, clinicians who began to uh, explore alternatives uh, and, for example, document the fact that uh, traditional treatment and AA uh, is life-saving for many people but is not useful and effective for the majority of people with drug and alcohol problems, right. you see. And we began to, uh, people began to experiment with offering alternatives such as moderation training for problem drinkers, um, offering patients goal choice. You know, do you want to stop or do you want to try to moderate? And lo and behold, the research began to accumulate that actually having more of a broad array of interventions, uh, a more, you know, a, a broader, a larger menu of options to offer people would actually increase the number of people that we could engage in treatment and we could effectively help. And so that kind of gave rise to this harm reduction evidence-based process, which has also interestingly been moving along at the grassroots level amongst uh, drug users and alcohol users who have not found traditional treatment to be helpful, among clinicians who uh, found that in their clinics the traditional model was not being very helpful. And, by the way, I was one of them working in a traditional setting like that. So now you see this grassroots movement kind of now starting to trickle up into certain government settings, uh, treatment centers. uh, And so now we're in the midst of this, you know, kind of um, uh, clash of models, Although uh, I think that across the United States, this new model is beginning to take hold um, in lots and lots of very interesting places. Um, So that's the American scene. Internationally, we have a different history where harm reduction actually was born in Europe. Some say it had, you know, very old roots in kind of British culture, but, but formally it seems to have come to life in Amsterdam, uh, Holland in the 70s. Also, you know, because of the failure of traditional approaches to be helpful to this large exploding drug problem that they were having. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, harm reduction began to move around Europe, but primarily as public health interventions. Um, That is, reducing the harmfulness of drug use without requiring abstinence as the central tenet of harm reduction um, uh, became more palatable, I think, to people around the world and also here in the United States in response to the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Right. You see, because that became the pivotal uh, motivation because now the broader society could see the importance of protecting intravenous drug users from becoming infected by HIV, from infecting their, you know, their partners and the larger community. And so that kind of seemed to tip uh, 
to an openness to considering harm reduction, but primarily as public health, you know, uh, intervention. What I've been finding, um, because, you know, as I've been developing my treatment model that I describe in the book, um, I've started to get calls from people who are interested in learning about this treatment model all across the United States and in Europe, and actually in two weeks I'm going to China. So the folks who have been practicing harm reduction as public health intervention around the world are now becoming interested in learning the psychotherapy piece, which partly the way I frame that is that harm reduction psychotherapy is the kind of the counseling context or the relationship context that will enhance or facilitate the delivery of other modalities, such as methadone or buprenorphine or even, I think, um, inpatient uh, detox and rehab. Mm-hmm. Um, if we consider that the harm reduction therapy focus is on therapeutic alliance, on engaging people, on in, in collaborating, collaborating, and uh, making decisions about their treatment, in you know, kind of assessing their needs and collaborating in um, choosing goals and strategies. I think then it has this very broad applicability to treatments across the whole addiction treatment spectrum. So, you know, I think this is a really interesting point. I was listening to uh, another um, writer on uh, harm reduction, um, Pat Denning, and she is making the point that there's a fundamental difference that she holds, that drugs and alcohol in themselves aren't bad stuff, you know, that everybody does it, and everybody has um, the pursuit of changes of consciousness. Um, and you, know, you could feel waves of consternation through the addiction professional audience um, as she described these uh, issues. But perhaps what you're saying is to have an attitude from the get-go as you're meeting with a client that drugs are bad and that this is the problem sets up the alliance to go askew and create an atmosphere um, where um, people cannot feel safe to explore options for themselves um, and um, that resistance is immediately um, increased. Is that, what, what would your thoughts about that be? Because well, I think this is a contentious little nugget here. Well, Dr. Green, I think you've uh, put your finger on what I believe to be one of the most radical and most important parts of a harm reduction perspective. And namely that when a clinician um, greets a patient with an agenda, mm-hmm. that is an a priori agenda um, that has been determined before the clinician has met the patient, That agenda, whether it is drugs are bad or drugs are good or, you know, you should stop or you should moderate or, you know, black people are such and such, women are such and such, whatever that agenda is, which which we could think of technically as a counter-transference problem, um, can contaminate the clinician's ability to listen and to be open to the unique Uh, qualities of the person who's sitting in that patient's chair. 
And um, it seems to me that a radical commitment to be aware of our agendas, we clinicians are humans, we have our beliefs, we have our biases, whatever we believe about drugs or about recovery, but it, it seems, and, and we're allowed to have those beliefs and experience, yep. but it seems to me that if we can put our beliefs and, and expectations to the side so that we can be open to uh, really hearing that person, and we, we, can, we can really enable them to explore things. We have to finish for the break, unfortunately. Okay. We'll be back in a second. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, this is Mark Green, standing in for Mary. Andrew Tatarski, um, international expert on harm reduction and harm reduction psychotherapy. We were talking about the attitude of the clinician um, as on that first meeting and how it can distort the um, process of engagement and, and, and alliance um, mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're beginning this work. Um, so, you know, we... You were, you, were, you were speaking to um, how an open attitude um, might be essential. Uh, please, what? what yeah. Well, uh, let me back up and just say a couple of words about that open attitude. You know, we all, you know, meet our clients or we meet one another with our uh, history, with our beliefs, with our experiences, with our training. And so we all have a degree of expertise. Um, but it seems to me that if we believe and make assumptions about another, um, that can contaminate or cloud our ability to really meet the other and uh, create a space for the other to uh, kind of greet us, to let us know who they are. Um, 
And so I think about that as sort of standing at the edge of what we know and sort of facing the unknown. And that that kind of openness, I think, becomes an invitation to the patient to share themselves with us. Uh, in the process of sharing themselves with us, I think, they begin the process of uh, clarifying for themselves who they are, what they need, what they want, what they're struggling with. And that that kind of collaborative inquiry into the experience of the patient, which is really designed to support the patient in gaining greater awareness, you know, uh, of who they are, is how the therapeutic process unfolds. Mm -hmm. So, okay, now you've been um, an addictions treatment professional for 25 years. You know, a lot of people die. Um, a lot of people um, go through terrible turmoil um, due to their drugs and alcohol. So do you just kind of fake it when you're in a treatment, when you're meeting someone? You say, I'm just going to have an open mind. Anything goes, you know, whatever's right for you. And what do you do with your, um, or do you stand for health, which must, at some point, um, you, you might, must want for the patient in front of you, yeah. um, maybe some abstinence and so they can, you know, regain some aspects of their life and stop suffering so much. What do you do with no. that quandary as a, as a treatment? Yeah, professional? you know, um, I've been thinking a lot about this um, and I'm actually writing um, about this right now. So you've caught me at a good moment because I think that this is um, an essential paradox of the work because on the one hand, we want to accept the patient as the patient is, with compassion, with respect, um, and in part, hopefully that will translate into the patient's, you know, uh, developing a greater acceptance and compassion for themselves, which I think is also one of the foundations that supports, you know, positive growth and change. On the other hand, the other part of the paradox is that we have a vision of positive change, of optimal health, of supporting people in healing, in growing. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, in a sense, that, is, that vision is our ideal. Um, and what that ideal will actually be for any given individual can't be known at the outset of the process. But you are right that we don't come in with no agenda, because the agenda is to support a person in um, growing and working toward positive change. It seems to me that we don't need to know what the outcome of that process will be. It's like we don't need to know where the journey will lead in order to support people in getting started. But we do hold this kind of paradox. And actually there is an analyst, um, Bromberg, Phil Bromberg, who writes about this. Um, who talks about how it may be that we are both empathizing with and attempting to uh, develop a relationship, an alliance with, you know, where the patient is today, um, but we also want to try to form an alliance with the part of the patient that wants change and growth, and that's the part that's coming for help. Um, and actually we're looking for that part of the patient to partner with as our colleague in the therapeutic process. 
because you're going to, <coughs> I bet, I, I, I suppose both you and the patient know that you're an addiction professional. Um, and even without saying it, um, there's, it's obvious that given the choices, you're more likely to be um, happier if you um, control or eliminate your drug use than if you continue to shoot with dirty needles and get infections. You know, like that's, um, that probably doesn't need stating very much. Um, but you're, uh, so it's interesting. So you're part, you, how um, explicitly mm. do you feel you need to, um, to state that health perspective and that movement toward um, less damaging behaviors and, and, and well, you know, the interesting thing is, and I think that this, what I'm going to say, flies in the face of what many sort of traditionalists believe, uh, a belief that I think is very uh, dangerous. That is, many people believe that, you know, drug users just want to get high. You know, addicts just want to get high. That's all they want to do. Um, and if you give them permission to get high, you know, then you're kind of enabling them, right? That's the only thing that addicts respond to is, um, you know, threats, um, negative consequences, mm -hmm. coercion. Uh, and parenthetically, that's the approach that doesn't work with the overwhelming majority of people. And, and we can talk about the statistics, if you like, if we have a moment. But um, what I have found is that when I present myself to the world, as I do, as a harm reduction therapist, meaning that I am not requiring uh, abstinence, a commitment to abstinence as the prerequisite to get started, what I find, in contrast to that, you know, cynical thinking, is that lots and lots and lots of people who are concerned about their drug use, struggling with their drug use, seek me out on their own when they would not have sought traditional treatment. They find me on the Internet. They go to my website. They find my book. And they call me up and they say, when I heard that a person was willing to work with me around my substance use without making demands and setting up requirements that I wasn't ready to fulfill, I became very interested because I am concerned about my use. I am struggling with it. And that then becomes the starting point, the patient's concern, because as much as the patient may be getting, the drug user may be getting some benefit, pleasure, you know, reinforcement, uh, positive effect from the drug, um, they're also troubled by it because there are negative consequences and potential risks. And that, if, if we can form an alliance with the part of the patient uh, that is struggling with that ambivalence, the dilemma, yeah. um, now we can partner with people to, to sort of think about better resolutions to that dilemma or... Um, maybe alternative ways of caring for oneself that are less harmful than drugs. Uh, and now we can talk about um, 
a full range of, you know, the, the, the wide range of issues that, and solutions that are possible in psychotherapy. So I'm curious, um, and uh, so, I mean, we, we'll, we'll I, let me just say, I do think this issue of negative consequences and learning from um, punishers um, is super important. Um, you know, without lots of statistics, it's um, apparent from the incarceration rates and um, punishments offered by society um, that um, it's not an effective strategy to treat people with addictions. It's also the case neurobiologically that um, people with addictions are insensitive to punishments mm. and, um, and immediate rewards um, as offered by drugs far outweigh delayed punishment or delayed rewards. Um, that's one of the characteristic issues um, found in people with drug addiction. But what do you say to, um, say, adolescents? Mm. Um, if, with, if you have this approach, mm. you know, that, um, what do you say to adolescents who may be at risk of loss of control because of their circumstances and genetics and patterns and other opportunities yes. in life, um, and um, are hearing, you know, there'd, there'd be one school of thought which says you really have to be very clear, um, you know, and try to restrict the amount of drugs and alcohol um, used. How does your um, approach and philosophy um, translate to either your own kids or other people's um, adolescents? Yeah. Well, I, I'm a father of two adolescents. So, okay, great. Um, I, they've, my kids have grown up in a harm reduction home. Um, and what I want to emphasize about that is that harm reduction uh, ex- explicitly recognizes that substances can be terribly, terribly harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, so harm reduction uh, is often sort of distorted by certain people as giving people permission. I, I think harm reduction acknowledges pragmatically that people are doing what they're doing and they are going to do what they're going to do. The question then becomes, how can we empower people, support people, uh, to make the best, healthiest choices for themselves? And um, so, on the one hand, with a patient that is in therapy with me, while, you know, threats of punishment may not be helpful, if we can create a space in the therapy where people can... Um, examine and make connections between their substance use and, the, and their suffering so that the self-assessment yields a greater awareness of negative consequences of their use. That can become motivating for people to reduce or stop their drug use. Similarly, I think with teenagers, yep. teenagers are going to be in very dangerous situations and challenged. And our challenge as parents, as educators, as clinicians is how can we best empower kids to make good choices when faced with those challenges? And maybe we'll come back to that after. All right, after the break. Stole my line. See you in a moment.
A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh. There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Oh, well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Oh, go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. Shoot, get away. Away with them, dear hornets! Hey, high pitch noises! Yeah, uh, try not to swallow too many! Get away! Knock that nest out of the park! You wouldn't treat your child like an adult, so why put them in adult seat belts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat. That's so cute. No, honey, hornets don't bite, silly. They sting. Ow! For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor and sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying, thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor and sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back, thanking me for my concerns, and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old fashion common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello, this is Mark Green, the medical director at Westbridge. Um, we've got Andrew Tatarski. And Andrew... Um, 
is an international expert on harm reduction, and I want to tell you about his website, which is andrewtatarsky.com. Um, Andrew Tatarsky, T-A-T-A-R-S-K-Y.com. And on that website, which is a very helpful resource, I've used it myself, Andrew, to find some good links, um, is details about his excellent book, Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, um, as well as um, it really serves as a portal to the greater world of harm reduction, um, politics, international forum, new news, training. Um, it's a wonderful resource, and thanks for keeping it so up, so up to date. Thank you. So, Andrew, um, we were um, talking a little bit about um, how in the relationship with your kids or with adolescents, the you know, fostering an atmosphere of understanding um, and acceptance while partnering with the, the part of the um, client which reaches for less suffering and um, advancement of health and, um, and security um, enables better choices to be made um, and movement toward um, movement forward in recovery. Um, and um, at least those are my words. Uh, were those fit? Well, yes. Um, those are good words. Uh, I think what we're talking about is how capacities to care for oneself, capacities for self-reflection, capacities to sit with discomfort, to manage difficult feelings, uh, to talk with to oneself in a kind of comforting and soothing way, um, to examine, uh, you know, one's relationship to others and to the world and kind of develop a judgment about, you know, the impact that our choices and our actions have. Um, all of those capacities, I think, are relevant to um, looking at problematic drug use. Um, and... I think one of the um, key vulnerabilities to problem drug use is when people have difficulties in this area of self-regulation, self-management, you know, self-awareness. And it seems to me that it's in um, specific kinds of relationships that um, these skills can be promoted, can be learned, can be supported. Uh, whether that's in psychotherapy, which I think is a key function of psychotherapy, to support people in developing these capacities to kind of uh, observe themselves and manage themselves uh, and make better choices. But that's also absolutely at the heart of, um, you know, what we want to do with adolescents. And I think that harm reduction is particularly well-suited for working with adolescents because the goal is to support individuals, the teenager, in making better choices, healthier choices, <clears throat> choices that are um, better for one's sense of self, uh, health, uh, well-being, and so on. And the question is, how do we best kind of facilitate that? So, you know, kids are going to be confronted by peer pressure, by stresses, you know, that are inherent, an inherent part of being a teenager, uh, let alone, you know, the challenges that kids can face. And um, those stresses are going to make them vulnerable to using a substance. 
And so it seems to me the more that we can empower with information, honest, accurate information that kids can trust, and with sort of survival skills, is kind of how I think about it, the, the research has shown that um, there are programs that promote self-esteem, promote assertiveness, um, uh, you know, promote kind of better interpersonal skills, uh, and these seem to be more related to, you know, uh, lower levels of drug use and other risky behavior than sort of the just-say-no variant of um, drug education. I think you're talking about two overlapping but slightly separate things, both the soothing and being able to sit with difficult emotions and slightly different is, you know, self-care, doing things for oneself, mm-hmm. um, which, um, like organizing oneself and completing tasks which will enable one to move forward. And I think that those are often eroded or lacking in adolescence, certainly, um, but in people with addictions and need to be quite explicitly learned um, and that it's much easier to learn those ex- permit oneself to learn those skills and put them into action in the kind of therapeutic relationship that you're describing to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, be, I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I, I also just, we've only got a few minutes left, but let's come back again to how this contrasts with um, traditional therapy, if we can, because um, I think it's important what you're talking about, the, the term harm reduction can really um, put a lot of people off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a shame because what you're talking about is really building a deep alliance and asking people, therapists, to question um, how their assumptions get in the way of enabling, uh, of permitting people to really partner with you to on that process of recovery. People get hung, stuck on terms like recovery, mm. stuck on terms like abstinence. Yeah. Um, so, but there's been so much success and we talked in a break about the hopefulness that this program can really bring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've run out your time. Are there some last words that you'd like to say before we end? Yes, well, I think you're right. Harm reduction is not the greatest term um, because... Um, I think it's much, much more than that. It is really about um, challenging the field, and, and we are all part of this field. We, all of us working in this field know that we haven't done such a good job of helping the majority of people who are struggling with, with drugs and alcohol. And so rather than putting the onus on the patient, on the drug user, um, this perspective says, it's on us as a field, as clinicians, to find more effective ways of partnering with people, of creating contexts that invite people in, that make people feel like they want to come for help uh, and like they're getting what they need. So from that point of view, I see harm reduction as being a kind of umbrella concept that bridges from drop-in centers to psychotherapy to traditional abstinence-based treatment. So, you know, and, and that wherever people can get started, it seems like we can begin the process of change and move them along that entire continuum as their needs change. 
So I see this perspective as really building on and kind of expanding the limitations of traditional treatment. So okay, we got to we got to finish there, Andrew. Yep. Thanks for being a great guest, Andrew Tarski. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.